Welcome to episode 34 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Liz Gloyne, who's chatting about her forthcoming book, Tracking Classical Monsters in Popular Culture. So lots of discussion today about the Ray Harryhausen films like Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, which if you've never seen, pause this, go away and watch them. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Although I'd suggest giving the Clash of the Titans remake a miss. We're also talking about that classic of 90s TV, Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, including its musical episodes and the so-called Kevin Sorbo Factor, what makes a good monster, how the presentation of classical monsters has changed from the 50s and the 60s, and the importance of reception studies overall. There's also discussion on another of Liz's research interests, the Roman statesman and philosopher Seneca. So, as always, thanks for joining me, and hang on, wait a minute... popular culture obviously when you're writing about this stuff there's just so much modern culture you could write about you know you could write about well you know anything about advertising um which i do a little bit um so in some ways you've always got to pare down and just because i'm sort of a bit more of a a books and film and television person there's sort of more of that in there than um i know other colleagues do a lot on this kind of stuff in computer games uh, which isn't something that i'm I'm not never have been a great gamer, but you have to limit your, as everybody knows, you have to limit your research questions somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because, just because I sort of haven't had a look at it, it doesn't mean there's not a lot there that you could say. So I'm hoping this will give people um, the opportunity and the, the framework to go off and look at some of those other media that I've not had a chance to dig into. Yeah, because I was having a look through the contents of the book. And I see that you've got various case studies like Ray Harryhausen, famously from the uh, 1960s. Uh, You've also got more recent stuff like Xena and Hercules and also Doctor Who's in there as well. How do you go about choosing the particular case studies that you've looked at? Well, thinking about the the films, um, the film chapters sort of start from about the 1950s. So sort of the great peplum, the great, um, you know, uh, sword and sandal numbers, uh, lots of men wearing very short skirts and right. trying to look manly at the same time um, and sort of starts there and carries on through. Um, and the reason you end up having so much about Harryhausen, who essentially has a chapter not quite to himself, but almost to himself, is just because he was so influential. Um, it's it's funny because if you think of classicists of a certain generation, by which I mean mainly my generation and a bit older, um, and you ask them, well, what got you into classics? So many of them will say it was watching Ray Harryhausen films. You know, we, we watched Clash of the Titans on wet bank holiday afternoons because that was always what was on, you know, um, or Jason and the Argonauts. These, these films were just part of part of your, your life growing up. Um, and they've really become hugely influential because it wasn't just those of us who've gone off to be classicists who that really impacted. It was people who are now really key people in, in the film industry who thought this is this is how you do monsters. Um, and that's carried on having a massive impact in, in a way I hadn't quite actually realised when I when I was was coming together with the project. But the more you look at it, the more you go, well, you know, this is raised fingerprints all over this, really. So that sort of made sense there. And when it came to thinking about the television stuff, you sort of think, well, where, where are where are the monsters in television? It's really interesting, actually, because you, you, you get them all over the place in sort of odd and occasional places. But the really interesting thing about just the whole Hercules, the legendary journeys thing is that it's sort of the longest sustained on-screen kind of world um, of ancient myth that, that we've, we've yet had on television. Uh, and to do sort of an extended consideration of it, there's remarkably little scholarship on it, actually, considering how much of it there is. How many series did Hercules actually run to? Yes, six, I think, is where we're looking at. Um, I've got actually the details of precisely how long it runs actually in the book. I'm actually going to check because it is a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal um, amount of 
screen time, which I think is one reason why people maybe haven't actually looked at it as much as they might have done. So you've actually got 111 episodes of Hercules, which each run to about 45 minutes. So that's eight over eight hours, 80 hours of television to watch, which I did a couple <laughs> of years ago. Mainlining Hercules episodes, my other half said to me, can you not just watch them all fast forward? And I said, no, that's missing the point. But it's it's a big investment. And I think it pays off if you're interested in sort of ways that the ancient world is thought about and, and, and modified and explored. Um, but it's a really, really good case study for thinking through what actually is. Do monsters that like in an ancient world setting when they're not just turning up in, for want of a better word, a monster of the week, the weak capacity, uh, which is certainly what you get when you get more into Doctor Who. OK, well... I guess, first of all, you can't really have too much Kevin Sorbo in your life. <laughs> yeah, there, there were, I, the wonderful thing about it is it is so self-aware about the Kevin Sorbo factor. <laughs> I mean, there is an episode sort of later, a bit later on when it's sort of settled into being quite, quite tongue-in-cheek about itself. It, it always starts out sort of quite lighthearted, but it gets more and more meta and referential. There's a fantastic episode where, where um, Hercules is, is persuaded to sort of uh, pose in the nude for a, a, a life painting competition. <laughs> Lots of Kevin Sorbo running around with strategically held bunch of grapes. It's very aware of its own physical embodiment of its hero. Uh, and sort of what that that means, which actually is one reason monsters are so so key to it, actually, because it's all about the monsters and Hercules' ability to conquer them, sort of really saying, you know, I, I am a hero, TM, even if what I'm doing right at this minute may, may be sort of more on the on the peacemaker mode of, of activity, if I'm reconciling two cities that want to sort of tear each other to shreds, you know. I'm still able to say that I've got heroic masculinity because I am fundamentally a monster killer. It's a really interesting set of tension balancing. Okay. So do you find, is there much in the way of continuity in the way that monsters are depicted in the Ray Harryhausen films to the Hercules and Xena series moving from the middle of the 20th century to the last part of the 20th century? I think... Part of part of the shift, there is a shift. Part of it is due to the fact that Harryhausen was very committed to the character of what he called his creatures. It's a lovely quote for him. Creatures, always creatures, never monsters. Uh, and that goes throughout his um, his work. I mean, he was he was a monster maker from dinosaurs to monsters from sort of Middle Eastern myths. Uh, he did a whole series of Sinbad films, which had both sort of um, uh, Eastern monsters and classical monsters mixed up quite indiscriminately. Uh, a wonderful giant octopus that destroyed the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, I mean, he was he he did lots and lots of different monsters and aliens. Um, and for him, it was always about uh, an integrity of the character, and that there was always sort of sympathy for them and a backstory. And if they were going to die, it was going to be magnificently, and you were you were going to feel something about these monsters. And I think as time has shifted um, from Harryhausen's quite sympathetic position, we've come into quite an instrumental vision of what monsters are for. They sort of turn up and get turned into sword fodder and that's it. And mm. there's no, you know, a, a lot of the big Hollywood block, blockbuster hero films sort of do that now. And one of the interesting things about um, the television series format is that it sort of okay it has some you know monster of the week kill them off and that's that but there are also monsters who are given episodes where they're allowed to become full-grown characters there are monsters who reappear in tracked ways across the series who actually get their own character arcs so there's something about the television format that actually allows the same kind of almost attention to detail that Harryhausen manages to give in a single film, but sort of more recent things um, get a bit caught up in, in that instrumentalised factor. Um, do you think that's partly to do with the time and effort that goes into or went into Harryhausen creating his own creatures as compared to 
more recent times where it's more about CGI, you know, obviously to create the Harryhausen creatures takes a lot of time and effort in the same way that CGI kind of does, but in a different way. And sometimes I get the feeling that CGI is not so perhaps valued for the time, for the um, work that goes into it. I don't know if you recently saw the trailer for the Sonic film that's coming out where there was a lot of backlash about how Sonic looked, so they're going to change the way he looks, even though they've really released the trailer. Um, And apparently I hear that can happen quite a lot in films where CGI has changed at the last minute. And there is this kind of sense sometimes that perhaps CGI is not considered to be as valued, perhaps, as the creature creation that you would have had back in the the days of Harryhausen. So do you think, yeah, overall, that there's there's just less value put into the the monsters or the creatures uh, in more recent times? Well, I think... I think CGI does something. I think CGI actually, because I think the people who try and do this stuff, I think they are genuinely committed to doing classical monsters properly. And therein lies the rub. Because they are committed to doing something very authentic with a capital A, very real with a capital R. Um, And when they try and get things absolutely perfectly right, something about the monster gets lost. Because if you think about Harryhausen's monsters, they were were monsters, but they were clearly not hyper-realistic because the way stop motion works, that kind of stuff. Um, There's only so much you can do with an armature and fur and feathers, and he did every single last bit of it. But there was was always something faintly unreal, yet also very real about these objects, right? which added to their monstrous quality. CGI, at the point we are now, can give you every single feather and every single bit of fur and every last, you know, gollop of drooling saliva, right? But there then isn't that space for that imagination that you had when you you were working with the Harryhausen creation. Um, and, I mean, one of the case studies in the book thinks about, looks at the case of... Um, Wrath of the Titans, the imaginatively imaginatively named sequel to Clash of the Titans, the reboot of Harryhausen, which spent most of its time attempting to prove it wasn't Harryhausen. But anyway, Wrath of the Titans, uh, which I actually think is a rather more interesting film because it is actually all about what do we do when I've got a bad relationship with my father, but granddad is going to try and destroy the world. Um, It's it starts with this this beast crawling out of a crack in in the village where Hercules has made Hercules sorry Perseus has made his his home and is going to be brought out of retirement by this great slavering thing um it's never named it just comes and wreaks havoc for about what five minutes before it's horribly horribly finished and and next you get Perseus standing by a window looking pensive if you went onto the internet, you would find there is this trailer called The Chimera, and it's all about people talking about The Chimera really enthusiastically. And we thought about how it was going to work, and this is how its biology works to make it blow flower, and, and look at all these details we put in, and it's really, really scary, and this is the this is how it works. And, and, and none of that got into the final film. Not a single bit of it. You know, the word Chimera is never said on script. So clearly there was this thought process and this care that went into building this monster and getting it just right, you know, down to like plausible biology of fire breathing. Um, But that sort of ends up becoming about almost a sort of a, a visual fetish of the of the CGI artist to say, look how properly I can do this. Um, and And you sort of lose lose any impact to the monster it just becomes cannon fodder you know its purpose is to make you know perseus sort of think hmm something is up in a heroic sort of way and and it doesn't you know that's that nobody ever really refers back to it or anything again it it has its moment it's gone yeah i never call wrath of the titans probably for the best um one quick question i have to ask the front cover of the book uh shows a guy dressed as a minotaur where is that from because I've got to say I think it's one of the best covers I've ever seen uh, perhaps for any book ever it's actually from an opera would you believe 
be embarrassing. It's, Har- it's um, Harrison Burke Whistle's opera, The Minotaur, uh, which was written specifically for John Tomlinson, um, uh, who is the base, who is who is the Minotaur, who's the man wearing the mask on the cover. Um, and I saw Tomlinson perform this at the Royal Opera House in 2013, and it was stunning absolutely stunning piece but the lovely thing about that particular costume is it sort of captures this nature one of the ways that we've started to really think about news monsters classical monsters particularly in in contemporary culture and the minotaur very specifically as this kind of way of exploring the tension between us as humans and our inner our inner monsters our inner beasts and the Minotaur is a really um, big focus of a lot of that exploration, actually. You know, I'm writing a book about popular culture. I think bespoke English opera is probably pushing the edge of uh, <laughs> pushing the edge of what counts as contemporary popular culture a little bit. Um, but I, I, I love the image, and I love being. A, I, I'm really glad I was able to bring that in and sort of have that represented somewhere in the book because it's a lovely, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fabulous opera. It's sort of, is, is, it's set in, set in Crete and, and it's uh, about the uh, entry of the tributes into the, into the maze and sort of uh, the Minotaur's own experience and, and, and obviously the uh, killing of the Minotaur by Theseus. And so it's, it's that episode um, in a fairly, in a fairly faithful sort of way you know the, the myth goes as you'd expect the myth to go but you obviously get the minotaur um on the one hand not being able to verbally communicate but on the other hand having this very rich internal life with with some wonderful arias wonderful music yeah so it's it was just a really when we found this image when we were looking for cover pictures it was it was just so perfect and fitted in so well uh, and as i say since i'd seen the opera it was it was really a no-brainer um when when that image came over over my desk well i was really i mean when initially when i was thinking about this i said you know can we can we get a harryhausen picture on the front but i mean the problem with the harryhausens is that they're all taken they're either, they're rather all too dark the available photography it was all either too dark because when you get when you're having an image on the front of a cover, you have to have something that can be appropriately licensed. You can't just take your own random screenshot and go, "That'll do," because mm. no, <laughs> that way, lots and lots and lots of uh, expensive court case lies. I think so. The, the existing ones were either too dark or emotional, the wrong angle, or didn't work the color profiles, and you know, so it was like, well, what what else is there? What else can we do? And uh, this this, as I say, turned up, and it was like, yes perfect absolutely and as I say it, it is such an effective cover and because of the way that opera works you actually have somebody standing still <laughs> and you can take a decent photograph of them as opposed to you know when you're screen trying to get a screenshot out of a film and that obviously is a bit more a bit more challenging um yeah so it was it was it's a really lovely piece of design and for a book that I'm, I'm hoping is going to get to, and it's been written to be a bit more readable for people, not just in academia, but people with a with an interest in this sort of thing. I'm 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 really pleased that the covers uh, come out that lovely. To be honest, I mean, is the is the Minotaur your favourite monster? I mean, it's quite I suppose a hackney question, but I've got to ask it. Do you actually have a favourite monster from across the different media that you've looked at, or just in general? Oh, I don't know. I, I waver on this question. I mean, I'm obviously terribly fond of Medusa, terribly fond of Medusa um, for all the variations, for the for the reclaimings, for the um, the reclaimings of her story from um, sort of making her this sort of hyper feminine, this dangerous threat of the emancipated woman um, all the way to reclaiming that to sort of uh, and various ways in which that's reclaimed both of this uh, sign of female strength um uh, some very actually powerful stuff now happening about reclaiming um your identity as a victim of sexual violence which obviously is uh, medusa's origin myth um according to ovid uh, she's raped by uh raped by poseidon um and then transformed by uh very victim blamey athena 
Um, so, you know, there are all sorts of uh, facets in which uh, Medusa is, is a really powerful, really multifaceted um, figure. Uh, I have to say the, the other the other monster that I'm sort of occasionally drawn to um, is the Sphinx, uh, who uh, is, I think, a fantastic, fantastic example when you think about that Oedipus, when he answers her riddle, is clearly the first man who's ever actually listened to her properly. Um, And has therefore been able to give the correct answer. And when you think about it in those terms, sort of the Sphinx as the, 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 almost the patron monster against mansplaining um, has, has a certain resonance there. (laughs) So I'm quite fond of her from that perspective. Yeah. It's interesting. As you're saying, I guess the way that we, often see monsters presented nowadays in TV shows, a bit like you were saying earlier with Doctor Who, is they turn up for the week and then they're eventually defeated and then everybody moves on. And they essentially just act as a plot device. But what makes a really interesting monster is a monster that actually does have some kind of backstory to it that's a multi-dimensional character that to some degree you can actually invest in as well. Exactly. And I think sort of the, the the key thing about monsters and what they do for us in sort of theoretical terms is that they help, they, they, they force us to ask awkward questions. And when you've got something that's used very instrumentally as that plot device kind of way, there's not really the, the, they don't have the ability to ask those questions, to find the shadows, as it were, to force us to sort of face up to some of that stuff. It's really interesting. Some some films do manage to do that still, but they tend to be the ones that are taking slightly more slightly more imaginative approaches to uh, to monsters and what they can do, and separating a bit from the hero. Uh, the ones that uh, come immediately to mind are uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pan's Labyrinth, um, which takes yeah. the figure of the fawn and sort of puts that at the centre of a. a a fairy tale about well set in the middle of franco francoist spain and then on the other hand you have the cohen brothers oh brother where art thou sort of is a riffing retelling interpretation of the odyssey but sort of does a lot with the the monsters of the odyssey in in quite imaginative and interesting ways uh and of course when you get into fiction and you get into words on a page then there's much more scope for giving these backstories giving these contexts making monsters that actually genuinely can you know take us to the place of interrogation which is what monsters do yeah i guess what you could say is that a good monster is something where it's like holding up a mirror for people that they can see elements of themselves in the monster I guess to some degree empathize with it yeah I mean monsters I mean so there is there is a whole branch of um, academic study which I have spent too much time reading about called monster theory <laughs> um, which thinks about the things that make monsters monsters and where they arise from um, and one thing that monsters do is they take categories that we think are settled and comfortable and they shove them because obviously humans like order humans like being able to say this thing is of this type and this thing is of that type and never the twain shall meet for reasons you know that that's how humans work in yeah very very crudely um in sort of social settings so what a monster does is it comes along and looks at these categories and goes want to be both want to disturb that not having that fantastic example obviously in greek mythology uh, is the centaur because you have humans, you have animals. Centaur, nah. <laughs> mm. Crossing that line. So those kinds of questionings, and so I, I pick the human-animal by a boundary as sort of a really, really obvious one that sort of illustrates that kind of. But this is sort of around things like categories of things that are pure and impure, categories of of people, categories of sexual behaviour. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which sort of the socially constructed boundary lines are are troubled and broken and, and, and brought into question by monsters. 
So they sort of flag up to us those things that we thought we were very secure in, those things we thought, yes, we know how the world works. Monsters scare us precisely because they, 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 they rock those foundations. Oh, man, there's so much that you can say about monsters. You just don't realise how much of a, an area of study it can be. I mean, only a couple of weeks ago, I had Dunstan on the podcast here at Kent um, talking about monsters and the module that he convenes here at Kent, the looks of monsters. Um, similar question for you that I had for him as well, though. He looks into reception of the classic world via video games. Um, and I asked him, and same question I put to you now, Does, have you found much in the way of pushback, you might say, from people, people looking at reception studies and being a bit like, oh, that's not really classics at all. Have you found much of that at all uh, in studying these these themes? Um, not so much, but I'm coming from a slightly, well, let's put it this way. I've, if you look at my, 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 my publication profile, my research profile, there is what might be again by people who might be a bit skeptical there is there is heavy lifting work on there if that makes sense you know mm. there is there is serious scholarly work on Seneca TM um, there is you know heavy heavy thinking um, and I think certainly certainly in the US maybe a bit less to this extent in the UK I think we are we are a lot happier with people whose scholarship is reception if they can also do proper classics tm and i put inverted commas around proper classics but you know there's there's almost a sense that if you if you've proved you can you can do things in in, in the proper and suitable way then you can do some reception um i did actually once have a very memorable conversation um where i'd, I'd actually presented a, a thing that i will get back to at some stage about of all things classical reception in the barbie doll yeah. it's in the barbie doll wow um, but uh, I'd done a presentation of it as a graduate student in the States and uh, I, I was talking to somebody afterwards and I said, well, actually, I've got this article, this first article I'm working on that should be coming out soon. Um, and that happened to be on uh, the Satyricon, so Roman novel. Um, and the person I was talking to said, oh, thank goodness. I'm so glad your first article isn't going to be reception. <laughs> and from their perspective talking to a graduate student who's trying to make themselves employable, set them up on the market, all of that kind of thing. It was a perfectly acceptable comment and indeed a rather pragmatic one. But from the perspective of, you know, how this stuff is received uh, elsewhere. Um, yeah, I think the UK is a very welcoming environment to reception studies. Um, I think we've sort of got past the era in some ways of the reception studies of, um, you know, I found an interesting thing. Let me tell you about the interesting thing. People now try and do more. There's sort of, more, there's a much more theoretical awareness of, well, you know, so what? And that's been part of the development of the field. And there's, you know, quite a lot of so what about the work being done now. And this is sort of, I'm, I'm talking about sort of 10, 15 years ago, you know, um, was when that tailed off. Um, but I, th I think certainly in the UK, we're very welcoming towards it. But I think elsewhere in, in, in the world, there is still a bit of a, well, hang on, how does this, how does this match up? How does this link in? Um, which is, is, is changing, is changing slowly. Um, but the fact that, you know, if, if you've done your PhD in a reception study, a reception area, as people do, the fact that we're, we're not, still seeing positions that necessarily fit those people in classics departments is I think a bit of a problem mm. um, you know you may have done your you may have done your PhD on for instance you know reception of the classics in the 18th century but if you can't teach Latin and Greek then your chance of being hired in a Latin in a classics department is pretty low um, and I think that's sort of an issue for us as a field in terms of where we place reception as a priority. Yeah it's interesting because I've heard people in the past so the occasional negative thing about reception studies but to me it seems a bit of a no-brainer that that should be a really important area of study because for the vast majority of the population this is how they consume the ancient world you know through books as in fiction books through film tv for most people it's it's the first introduction they get to the ancient world and obviously that's then going to have a big impact on 
how people then go on to further engage with the ancient world, whether or not they want to explore it more, whether or not they want to find out more about it. I mean, I've been looking quite recently at Rudyard Kipling and his presentation, particularly of the cult of Mithras. And I think we forget sometimes that somebody like Kipling, for example, was read by millions of people uh, when he was at its height in the early 20th century. And that is how, as I say, most people would have found out about um, about things like the cult of Mithras at the time. Like They're not going to be reading, uh, even like today, people aren't reading, the vast majority of people aren't reading you know, the latest academic books or journal articles, you know, they're engaging with this stuff through popular culture. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I said that sort of a lot of, you asked a lot of classicists, sort of my my vintage and, and older, what got you into classics, they'd say Harryhausen. I mean, the number of UCAS statements you now read where people say, I first got into classics because of Percy Jackson. Mm. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's a fabulous way to come to the subject. Um, the trick is then how, you know, what what worries me um, is when there are um, examples of classical reception that are perhaps not being used as thoughtfully as one might like. Mm-hmm. I've got a particular case study in mind here, you may have guessed. Um, the complete boom in young adult novels that are young adult literature that are using in some way, shape or form the Persephone myth as their, their heart story. I mean, it's huge, absolutely huge. Um, we had somebody on the uh, our um, Royal Holloway runs a master's um, in research on classical reception. So you spend the year basically writing 30,000 words on a subject on reception that you are interested in. And a couple of years ago, somebody on that programme did something on on the Persephone myth in, in young adult fiction. And it was, you know, in, and then I've had somebody in the last year who's also done her undergraduate dissertation uh, on the same question, different sources. Um, it's, it's astonishing how little reflection there is on on the problematic elements of that story and how often what is presented as sort of a a romantic approach actually is reinforcing norms about coercive relationships Mm. and presenting that as something that should be desirable um, and as something that should be healthy. And I think there is actually sort of an interesting place for people working in classical reception because there are creators out there right now who are, who are writing this stuff who currently don't necessarily realize there are academics who'd, who'd like to talk to them um or who are working on their own material um and and you know one thing it would be very interesting to do would be to sort of make more of those kinds of conversations happen to sort of say you, you know so you want to write about the persephone myth brilliant how are you going to cope with the fact that she's abducted by her uncle and then forced, potentially forced into a relationship? So if you make these choices about how you're going to make that a bit less horribly coercive, what are the consequences of that? Mm. How, how, how do you, um, because all of the, all of the examples that certainly sort of I've, I've seen students work on, you know, attempts to make this a romance story then end up with horrible horrible unintended consequences for what that actually means for the rest of the story and the characters that are presented as if this is perfectly lovely and romantic and and that you know when when the main audience of those kinds of novels are young impressionable people forming their their norms about what relationships should look like something that meets most of relates criteria for an abusive relationship being presented as beautiful and wonderful and what you should be going for bit of an issue yeah in a module we were running last year we actually did a seminar on the persephone myth and it is definitely uh, a myth about which you can have quite a lot of interesting discussion so i'm not surprised that a lot of people have turned to it for a source of inspiration um but as you say, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of difficulties that surround that story. Yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest for a minute that people shouldn't tackle it. I mean, it's a fabulous it's it's a fabulous story to start with, and people can tell fantastic stories with it. But what I would I would like to see classicists being able to get into that conversation, reception scholars being able to get into that conversation is okay. So, what are the consequences of some of these choices you're making? Mm. you know can, can and can you sort of engage with that maybe a bit more rather than just pretend they're not there 
Because myth has been changed and retold and realtered for centuries, millennia. And that's yeah. what myth is for. I'm not in any way, you know, I'm not in any way a purist about this must be as, as hopefully, you know. There is there is no one proper way to tell the myth. There hasn't been since antiquity, and to pretend otherwise is very, very silly. Um, but I think there are conversations that could productively be had. And this is, I mean, with the Demeter uh, Persephone story, obviously, this is a very, very um, obvious place. But I think even with, with with all myth, there are conversations about, well, what what actually changes? What's at stake? Are there other mythic variants? Are there, you know, that, that could be very rich conversations for creatives working in these areas um, and very productive ones that might give us richer receptions, perhaps. I guess we've kind of been discussing it here anyway, but more broadly, do you have any ideas about where you'd like to see the discipline go and how you'd like to see it uh, evolve? Obviously, we're just talking about the place of reception studies, but do you have uh, alongside that any more broader ideas as well? And I think this is sort of the big the big question really facing us is how we're actually going to call to respond to the call to decolonize a discipline that's set upon the supremacy uh, upon arguing for a supremacy of Greece and Rome, by which we mean white Greece and Rome um, above all other things. Um, and that is something that I am in my thinking desperately trying to work out what I do, because my research at the moment, uh, obviously the monsters sort of stand aside from that. Um, my, my, my core antiquity research, should we say, rather than reception research, uh, looks at the thinking of Seneca the Younger. You know, I'm looking at a Spanish thinker, um, but I'm, I'm looking at somebody who belongs very much to that core. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to take the very first baby steps to thinking about, well, how do I think about that in different non non-exclusionary, non-colonialist ways of thinking. Um, I don't have any answers to that yet. And I think a lot of the recent conversation has been very good about reminding us that decolonization is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's something you do inch by inch and you get better at as you go. But I think as a field, we we really need to grapple with that one. Uh, we need to take it seriously. We need to not pretend this is something we can get away from. Um, it's not something that I think, I mean, I know there are conversations going around about changing the name of the field. Um, and on the one hand, yes, we can do that. But a cosmetic name change is not, you know, it, it's not enough. There needs to be fundamental shifts and changes over a, a, a sustained period of time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's something I know I need to sit down and think about a lot more. And I'm very glad that there are people in the discipline who are thinking about it a lot more and who um, are leading that conversation. Um, and yeah, so that that I think is our next great challenge is, is working out how we fundamentally address some of the really big structural problems um, about the discipline um, to to open up the conversations and get us away from some of the uh, the pillars uh, that we've we've rested on um, and and move move forward um, in that in that journey and it's going to be a slow one it's going to be a painful one and people are going to get cross and upset about it but um, it's also going you know you you, you don't grow without growing pains um, you know you, that that is part of the process is the discomfort of, of 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 breaking out of your old shell almost um and into into something bigger and better um and i think it's worth it to be honest yeah on the previous episode where may musier joined me as a guest uh, may was talking about expanding our uh horizons in terms of looking at the ancient world in regards to uh, asia sub-saharan africa and i think that Taking that approach can only be a good thing because more than anything, it keeps the it keeps the subject fresh by adding new perspectives and new avenues um, to explore and widening the participation in it. Absolutely, um, and it also, I mean, you know, the whole point of doing academia, the whole point of doing research is creating new knowledge, right? That's that's what those of it. That's what the PhD criterion is. Have you made new knowledge in this PhD? And if we keep on doing things the way that they've always been done, because they've always been done that way, there comes a limit to how much new knowledge you can actually create before you just start rehatching what's been done before. Mm. Um, which is why, I mean, I Dunstan is working 
in monster theory material. Um, uh, Debbie Felton is, uh, Dan Ogden is. But, you know, I think one of the reasons this book is, is, is so exciting is it's the first one to take monster study kind of stuff and put it into reception contexts. Um, so I think, you know, theory of all kinds actually gives us new avenues and new ways of thinking. Um, obviously, the decolonialising question, issue, problem, challenge is pressing, timely, not just in terms of knowledge, well, well, in terms of knowledge creation in the broadest sense, who gets to make the knowledge in our field? You know, there is there are massive knock-ons there. Um, and obviously the issue of gender hasn't gone away. This is mm. going away. And the question of how the intersection between uh, gender and issues of decolonisation come together, um, again, needs to be paid attention to, um, both in terms of who gets to make knowledge and that knowledge that is then created. Um, and credit given to the people who are pushing those boundaries. It's not okay for people to come in and sort of say, oh yes, I came up with this idea when, you know, there's people been doing the work, maybe in other disciplines, maybe in your own discipline for, you know, um, however many years previously. But yes, that idea of, you know, having the new ideas and the fresh perspectives that help us keep seeing new things in these texts that we've been working on for so long. Um, and indeed looking at texts that maybe we haven't thought deserve to be looked at. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, Seneca has, has Seneca has come back into popularity in the last 20 or 30 years or so. Um, I mean, just yesterday on the Classicist List of a conference uh, was announced in Lisbon for 2020 uh, titled, um, What More Can We Say About Seneca? <laughs> I mean, you know, I have I have views on that. Uh, the answer is quite a lot more. Um, but it's not actually an unfair question. We've been saying things about Seneca for millennia. What else is there still to say? Well, <laughs> you know, um, when we come at it with the fresh eyes that we now have, we can say an awful lot more. So what was it that actually drew you to studying Seneca? Well, it was, yeah, it was a bit of serendipity, really. Um, so I had uh, been... So I did my graduate work in the States, did my PhD work in the States at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Um, and there you do your three years worth of taught coursework and then you have to come up with a, a PhD proposal and that has to be approved by the department so that they make sure you're not biting off more than you can chew and then you sort of go off and get on with it. Um, and I did my proposal and I, since my um, master's, uh, my MPhil, which I did at Cambridge, I'd known that what I wanted to think about was the family in philosophy. Um, I wanted to think about how different philosophers thought about family. And what I put forward at that first chunk was I would like to think about um, the family in philosophy. I would like to start from pre-Socratics and go all the way through to the Hellenistic schools and I'm going to do sort of a comprehensive survey of everything that they think about the family. And it's not quite that the department came back and laughed at me, but they did point out that that was basically a lifetime's work and might I want to have something a little bit smaller. <laughs> Which was a fair comment. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, how can I how can I narrow this down? What is the sensible way of doing this? And as I was was walking along a street in Brooklyn on a rather nice summer's afternoon. And this is actually etched into my memory. I had a flower tucked behind my ear. Um, it suddenly came to me that the way to do it was to limit it to Seneca. Um, and I couldn't tell you precisely why Seneca, um, apart from the fact I'd been reading a bit of uh, sort of his work and I obviously knew him from sort of working on other things. And, you know, and, and it just sort of struck me very suddenly and very forcefully that Seneca was the author I liked. Seneca was somebody who had a lot of text, so you could say a lot about it. And that this was going to make sense and this was going to let me do what I wanted to do in a manageable, you know, a PhD sized project. Um, and that it was going to work. And so I went back to the apartment and I wrote up my revised um, uh, proposal um, and sent it off. And it came back with a yes, absolutely. Um, and then off it went, really. So it really was one of those very, very clearly moments where everything just slots together. Mm. And, and, and my brain suddenly went, we have the answer. Hello. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so it was. Yeah. 
it, it was just the right answer at the right time. Do you feel at all then, having worked on Seneca for a number of years, that you've got a good appreciation of Seneca the person? I mean, when I had Christopher Burton Strevens on the show way back when, uh, Christopher works on Cassius Dio, and he was talking about this kind of mental image over time that he's built up of Dio, the the man, rather than as the, the literary figure. Do you ever kind of feel that you've reached across the ages and gotten to know Seneca, Seneca the person, rather than as this kind of big, uh, as I say, literary figure at all? No, I think I think so. I mean, so, you know, occasionally these questions go around about, you know, which figure of the ancient world would you like to hang out with? You know, and I often think that I would I would quite like to to sort of end end a conference or end a day of a conference sort of in the bar with late period Seneca of the letters, um, sort of when he's he's in sort of his politely, politely catty phase. Um, and you know he, he he would be one of those sort of gossipy people with a martini, <laughs> terribly nice, terribly nice, but uh, sort of def- definitely on point and sort of uh, absolutely ruthless, and also sort of generous to spirit, not 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 unpleasantly bitchy if that makes sense, but that 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 kind of I, I definitely get that from the Seneca of the letters, quite so much from the younger Seneca to be honest. I mean the personality is a bit less clear there. Um, but then again, he's writing very differently. Um, and when he's writing the letters, he's writing to an addressee. Um, you know, they may or may not be actual genuine letters, as it were. But he's sort of writing in a in a very accessible, very you know, you you can really get the feel of the person in the style. Um, and yeah, so I think that sort of is is a deliberate result of the the authorial strategy he's adopted there to to make you sort of come on board and think, well, maybe this maybe this stoicism thing has got something to it after all, you know. So I'm sort of not surprised that that's my response. Yeah, it's just like when you were talking there about him being at the bar at the end of a conference. For some reason, I've got this image in my head of him looking a bit like no coward with martini in one hand, cigar in the other, quietly taking people down uh, in a very subtle way um just moving then towards wrapping up then so the book is on the horizon when does it come out very fittingly out on halloween oh Um, Mm -hmm. rather nice um but yes so uh out uh, from 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 bloomsbury tracking classical monsters in popular culture um and uh yeah so that will be out on halloween and i have to say speaking about sort of accessibility and those kinds of things i'm very glad that they have got the paperback edition already available at a for academic books comparatively um uh, accessible price uh, which I was feeling quite strongly about going into this whole process. You know, this is this is a book that I want people to be able to read. It's not, you know, just for just for the university libraries to buy. And do you do a blog as well, right? Do yes, I blog over at uh, well, the blog is called Classically Inclined. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Liz Gloin uh, at WordPress. Uh, standard blog um it a little bit quieter at the moment just because i'm sort of catching up with everything but i've been doing a lot of work over there on uh, things supporting uh teachers who are teaching the love and relationships uh, of the um uh ocr classical civilization a level which has been examined for the first time this year and has a big component on seneca uh, but i'm hoping that uh, there'll be a little bit more content on there about monsters as we run up the launch date so mm. uh, keep keep an eye out on that how long have you had your blog going now? Oh, gosh, I started it, I'm trying to remember, 2011 or so. I started it when I was still in the States. Okay. Um, and it has it has, it has has busy periods and quiet periods, um, as all these things do. And I just quite like having somewhere where I can just witter a bit about what I'm up to. And you're on Twitter as well? I you... am, Twitter at Liz Gloin. Uh, very easy to find me. <laughs> Cool. Uh, anything else you want to advertise at all? If you are if you are a Facebook person who likes Facebook pages, there is a Facebook page for the book, um, oh, okay. which is uh, which is getting um, uh, you know classical monsters as spotted in popular culture. Um, I found with this project, people just send you them all the time, um, and you know I can't necessarily do anything with them, but it's nice to have somewhere to share them with people. So if that sounds like it's your sort of bag, uh, just search for Tracking Classical Monsters um, in Popular Culture on Facebook and it will send you to the page. Well, you might find yourself doing a 
talk at Comic-Con or something like that a bit further down the line. That'd be really cool, actually. I've spoken twice at Nine Worlds, which is sort of a London-based science fiction convention on classical monstery stuff. So, uh, and that's really fun. Really good fun. So I'd love to go and do something like that again. One last question. Do you have a particular favourite Hercules or Xena episode at all? I do. It's not a Monsters one. It's a Hercules one. And it's the bit where they do a riff of Some Like It Hot. Oh, wow. They do, yeah, they do a musical parody of Some Like It Hot. And it is, oh, it is joyful. Um, it, 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 it's a bit hard to describe, but there's there, there are lots of feather boas and high camp value and it is just if you are if you are grumpy if you are fed up it is immensely cheering wow people always remember the buffy musical episodes but i didn't realize that hercules had had perhaps got there first there are (laughs) several there are several and they're all as i say very cheering okay well if you're listening uh go away make sure you check out the musical episodes of hercules also the book and various other things but definitely definitely the musical episodes of hercules Right, thank you very much for this. Great, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.